0: Good morning, gentlemen. Hope you're doing well today and throughout this month, and we wish you a happy advent, very Merry Christmas. Get that Christmas shopping done, especially for the the main woman there. Let's do well. Economic times a little better this year. No cheap gifts allowed. Let's get let's give her something that will say we love you. Hey, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and while you're turning, let me remind you that the Apostle Paul is dealing with a bunch of folks who have been pagans all their lives and they still live in a very pagan culture, and the change of mindset when one becomes a follower of Christ is enormously challenging and difficult, and there are lots of things that need to change in these men's lives. And you get one thing solved and another one pops up. And the Apostle Paul just taking one thing after another. And we saw in the very beginning of the letter how he speaks of the divisions that had risen among them because they, they were following different teachers. And they thought they were right in doing so. And then we saw how he challenged their sexual ethic. And then how they, he, he challenged their, their conflict resolution ethic. You know, instead of using civil courts, they were to learn to resolve things within the family of Christ. And then we saw in chapter 7 how their marital ethic uh, needed to be challenged. And then when we came to chapter 8, we began a long section on things that have to do with the purity of their worship. And first of all, we we saw that they had to be challenged about whether they would still be engaging in pagan feasts and eating uh, meat that was offered to idols or not. And there's the you know chapters eight nine and ten have a lot to do with that, and then in chapter eleven last time, Mitchell uh, showed us how uh, there's an important worship issue, and that is that you not the women not throw off their head coverings, and appear to be a bunch of flusies, uh, in the eyes of the neighboring pagans as they go to church, and that they not deny the uh, coming under the authority of their husbands because they become liberated Christians, so that too can pollute worship. And now we come to a section about the Lord's Supper and we'll see that there's actually an issue underneath this that's driving it all. Then when we get to chapters 12 through 14, we'll see three more chapters that have to do with how we worship together, including the use of tongues and other demonstrative gifts, uh, what are the important issues in spiritual gifts and in using those gifts in worship. So a lot of issues about worship. Why? Why? Because worship is the most important thing that you do. And we need to be sure that gets right. And that not only does it get right, but it gets engaged. And you're an actively engaged worshiper personally, within your family, and within a church uh, that teaches the scriptures. So uh, that's the reason for so much emphasis on this topic. Now let's turn to chapter 11, verse 17. Paul has been discussing head coverings, what he's really been discussing is maintaining proper order in worship. In other words, when we come under the authority of Christ, that doesn't mean we throw off every other authority. No, it means that when we come under the authority of Christ, every human authority becomes even more important to us because we're submitting to all authorities because we're submitted to the big authority of the Lord Jesus Himself. So, maintaining order and authority structures becomes important to a believer because they are ordained by God Himself for our good and His glory. So now we turn to verse 17, and we're going to notice, uh, maybe it's a little subtle, but you'll remember that Paul has been primarily answering questions here recently in the text that they've asked him in a letter they sent back. Remember, he sent them a letter. They send him a letter back asking questions, and then 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter to them And in this letter he's answering their questions. When we come to verse 17, he kind of goes off script and he's no longer answering questions that they asked in the letter. You'll notice this in the language. But he's once again going back to things he has heard. And you remember he heard from people in Chloe's household certain things that were going on there. In fact, the first four chapters had to do with things that he had heard from Chloe's household. Now he's going to refer to some more things he heard from Chloe's household that have to do with divisions. But these divisions are not the divisions resulting from following different leaders or teachers in the church. These divisions are of another sort altogether that apply to the issue of worship, as we shall see. So let's pick up with verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. Okay, first thing we want to notice in verses 17 all the way through 27 is the Lord's Supper must not be abused. The Lord's Supper must not be abused. He says in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, and that phrase come together occurs five times in verses 17 through 22. It's almost a technical phrase for coming to church. So he uses it over and over again here. He's talking about their gathering for corporate church worship. When you come together, look at this, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now there's a statement. It's better for you not to go to church this morning than to go, he's saying. Because of what you're doing when you get to church. And you know what? There are some churches like that. Churches that don't preach the gospel, you're better off not going. Because you're, you're offering false worship to the Lord. If it's not worship in the gospel, it's not true worship. So if a, if a church doesn't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ then it's a synagogue of Satan. You're better off not going. Malachi reported that the the, the Lord said to His people, Malachi chapter 1, verse 10, He says, Would someone please shut the doors? And He could have added, And lock them! uh, Because you're you're bringing blemished animals for sacrifice. I'd rather not have any sacrifice than to have your cheap sacrifice, which shows your apathy and carelessness, and contempt. He uses the word contempt for the Lord. So just because we go to church doesn't mean it's pleasing to the Lord. Yes, we must go to church. But we must go and do the things that please Him. And there's some things here that really don't please Him, and I'd rather they not have church than to do what they're doing. That's a very, very strong statement there in verse 17. Now, the Lord's Supper must not be abused... And I want you to notice in verse 18 through 22, it must not be abused by socially snobby behavior. That's really what he's talking about here. Socially snobby behavior. We'll dig into it and see how bad it really is. But first of all, this socially snobby behavior is divisive. Look at verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now this word divisions, we we had back in chapter 1, verse 10, is the word schismata, from which we get the word schismatic. So there are schisms among you, divisions. Now in chapter 1, the divisions had to do with our, our sort of false but deep loyalty to particular teachers. Here it's a different form of divisions that we'll see in just a moment. But he says, and I believe it. In part, and what he's saying is, look, this came to me by report of Chloe's household, so I didn't see it firsthand. And you may have some mitigating uh, excuses for something that's going on, but in part, at least, I believe what I'm being told that there are these kinds of divisions among you. And notice, he's saying it not only is it divisive, but secondly, it's non-Christian. In verse 19 he says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine, those who are tested and proven to be authentic Christians, may be recognized. And this is an unusual statement. But here's what the apostle is saying. Sometimes evil, we we need to look at it in a variety of ways. First of all, it's perpetrated by the evil one to undermine the kingdom of god and to defame his name and to destroy human beings but secondly it's it's all permitted by god everything that happens is under his hand and god has his purposes for allowing certain evils at certain times and paul seems to be pointing out here that one thing that happens when evil comes into your church is that we're going to find out who the real deal deal is we're going to find out who the real followers are and you know at various times in my life both in churches i was serving or in other churches that I was consulting or that I was observing, uh, I could see when evil would break out within the body of Christ, there would always be a few men who would raise the Christian flag sky high. And and I've seen cases in my own experience, I'm sure you have too, where someone who might have been relatively quiet, or you just never had an opportunity to know what their deep character was, Boy, when conflict comes and evil starts to be perpetrated, they just rise up boldly and graciously to be towering men of God. It's amazing how how that happens. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul had seen this happen over and over again. So remember, gentlemen, when something is happening in your church or among your Bible study that is really dark or even depressing and evil, That it is the opportunity for you to show your character, to be tested, and you need to pass the test. During various times when churches in our community would be going through trials and troubles, sometimes lay people from these various churches would write me and say, what in the world do I do? And if it were a Bible-believing church, first thing I would say is, for God's sake, don't leave. Stay right there. These are some of the best moments in your particular life. It will... It won't feel like your best moment. But when you look back on it in your life and in the life of your church, you'll see it was a very, very important moment. So Paul says, I believe this in part, not only because of the report that I received, but after all, this is the way God works. Sometimes darkness comes into your life so that your light will shine all the more brightly. You know, if I hold a little candle here this morning with all these lights on, you wouldn't even notice But if it were about four hours ago, and I held that candle up, it would illumine the entire room because nothing else is on. It's dark in here. So when you've got darkness around you, there's no excuse for evil. It doesn't mean you delight yourself in the evil. It simply means that in God's providence, you're taking this moment as an opportunity to raise the Christian flag and to light the Christian torch. That's what the apostle is saying here. So there were some who were showing their distinctively Christian character in the midst of these schisms that were taking place in the church. But it is non-Christian. And he says the way that they were behaving was non-Christian because in that non-Christian behavior, the real Christians would stand out in the church. Now thirdly, it is self-defeating. He says when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Wow! We just had communion And the Apostle Paul is saying, that was not the Lord's Supper. might have been your supper. It was not His. And the word here is really interesting when he says the the Lord's Supper uh, is really the supper of the Lord because there's one Greek word, kuriakon, or kuriakon, that is of the Lord. This is the word from which we get the word church. Church comes from the Celtic word kirk. And kirk comes from this word, Kyriake, of the Lord. So the church is that which is of the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. And here he's saying, in Revelation chapter 1, you get John speaking of the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, Sunday. And it's Kyriake, But here this is the table, Kyriake, the table of the Lord. And what the apostle is saying, it belongs to Him. He's the host of the table. It's His meal. And you took it away from His from his hands, and you made it your meal. And let's see what they were doing. He says it is shameful. And here's what he says. What? Uh, he says, uh, well, backing up to verse uh, 21. One goes hungry. Uh, for an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. This is where the division was. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. That's how they were dividing themselves. And he says it's shameful. What? You not have houses to eat and drink in. Do you despise the church of God? Would you humiliate those who have nothing? Here's what was happening. In pagan culture, as in most cultures, there were class distinctions. Uh, and you can just use your imagination as to how those classes and orders would have been established. A lot of it had to do with whether you had uh, you know, Roman citizenship and if so... Uh, how close you were to the imperial uh, family or the Roman government, how much money you had, how many slaves you had, how many wives you had, and so on. So there were certain ways in which things were ordered. In uh, From archaeological studies, we know generally how those homes were built. And there was in those homes what we call the triclinium, which is the dining room. And of course you know that There would be a table and the men would lie down at the table with their feet behind them and they would eat around the table. And you could get nine or ten people in a reasonably sized dining room. Then the homes had what we would call a porch or an atrium. There you could get 30 to 50 people in the atrium. Now, in that culture, in Greek culture like most cultures, uh, when you have someone in your triclinium in inside your house, those are going to be people who are of your same class. Uh, If guests come who are not of your same class, you might meet with them on the atrium. You probably wouldn't invite them into your interior house. You remember there were no church buildings in the first century. We were all meeting in homes. So we also, especially in Corinth, uh, this meal is not what we would think of as the Lord's Supper, where we're going to come and get you know, a little piece of bread and a little cup of, of wine. This was a full meal, in the midst of which, it appears, there was the breaking of the bread with words that were stated over it that the Lord Jesus gave us bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. And then they would eat the supper, eat the bread. And then afterwards, they would take up the cup, and there were usually several cups of wine, And this would be one of those cups of wine, like in the Passover meal. And they would would say, and Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. Drink, drink ye all of it. And so that would be the typical way in which this feast would be held. And it was called in some places a love feast. But it was a church, it was a church supper. And at their church, church supper, they also had communion, probably suffused through the meal. So it was all kind of one meal together. So it was both a feeding of the people, like a fellowship supper, and a sacramental celebration of of bread and wine. That was probably, scholars think, how it happened. Now here's what was happening. The people who were hosting the church meetings were people who probably had a little bit larger homes, which means they were probably the wealthier people in the church. We know that the Corinthian church was made up of a lot of slaves because, as you know, there were over 200,000 slaves in Corinth. And so a lot of them had come to the church. But there were a few wealthy people too and a few well positioned people. And they would probably be the ones to host the meeting. And here's what happens the wealthy people can get off work whenever they want to, as early in the afternoon as they want. And the slaves, they work until late in the afternoon or early evening. So they get there late. So the wealthy people get there early and they all come into the triclinium like they're used to doing. They've, always they've done this for years and years. Their mamas and their daddies did it. Their grandparents did it. This is just the way you did it. So all the wealthy people get there early because they're in the leisure class and they start eating and by the time they've gotten the last glass of wine, they're kind of happy, you know. They've had a few glasses of wine. They, they shouldn't because you're not supposed to be drunk, but they were. And then here come the working class, the slaves. And there's no food left. And these wealthy people have already had their little party and all their food and drunk to excess. And these people have nothing. It's it's outrageous behavior. But one can understand it because that's the way they had grown up. That's the way everything had always been. And once again, Paul is challenging the reigning paradigms in that culture. And I have to ask you, how would he challenge ours? Where are we showing distinctions between certain classes of people? Now, we're not English, so we we say we have no classes. Oh, yes, we do. We may not put them in the newspaper. We may not announce them as formal classes to which everybody belongs. We're not Indians with a bunch of castes and subcastes, but we have all these informal castes and subcastes, don't we? You know, you're in the executive group. Well, are you a CEO or an executive VP? Or are you just a regular VP? And all those titles, they put you in a certain order. And, well, are you of the million dollar class or are you of the $10 million dollar class? Or, ooh, maybe more than that. And if so, once we find out, Through the rumor mill, what your likely worth is, your net worth, then we give you the worthy place in our respect and esteem based on what we perceive to be. Oh, you know, he wouldn't, you would never know, but he's a very wealthy man. Oh, really? It's really well, I'll give him new respect. And you know how we do things. And so, how many servants do you have? How many people work for you? Uh, that has something to do with where you fit. And we all show various orders of respect within the church. Now, I believe in respecting people for all kinds of reasons. But when we're respecting someone at the expense of someone else who's a, equally a brother, now you've got yourself a big problem. And Jesus says, I'd rather you close the door than to act in church like that. So here He's saying, what you are doing is shameful it is not the Lord's table. When you have supper like that, that's your supper. That ain't the Lord's supper. And he says, what you are doing is despising the church. As Gordon Fee said in his commentary, they're acting as though the church counts for nothing in their eyes. It's as though you have no church membership at all. Because you've not understood that when you come into the communio sanctorum, the holy communion of the God's people, the holy fellowship, When you come into that, you come into that as your family. And you treat them as brothers and sisters. So, uh, if you don't do that, you're despising the church of Christ. So here we have socially snobby behavior of the worst order that is humiliating some of our family by showing preference for people who have things, who who are the haves rather than the have-nots. Well, leave your finger in 1 Corinthians 11. Turn back with me to page 2393 in your Bibles. This is James chapter 2, 2393. And see what James, the brother of Jesus, says about this. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If we look at verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And let me remind you, a dead faith does not save. That's James's point. Saving faith is an alive faith. Saving faith is a faith accompanied with works. And one of the clear works of someone who has faith is that they honor brothers and sisters regardless of their material belongings and possessions, regardless of their power and influence, regardless of what they can do for me. I'm going to serve them because they're family. And here in Corinth, it was being completely obliterated by the way they were acting in their social life within the church. Now, notice that Paul says uh, to them, one goes hungry and a- another gets drunk. And he says, do you not have our houses to eat and drink in? Verse 22. He's not saying to them, you're wealthy people. You he's not saying as, that, that every one of you must sell your house and have a house like the poor people. He, he's not saying that you can't even have a nice meal if you want to have some of your friends over and have a very nice meal. What he's saying is, when you are meeting as the assembly of God, and when you're functioning as the assembly of God, there must be equality. So if you want to have a real expensive meal, and you want to have it in the early afternoon, fine, just have it over in your house and go do it. But you don't you don't come to church and exclude people based on those. Economic categories. Now, this goes way back in Israel's history. All you have to do is look at Hosea, look at Amos, look at Isaiah, and look at the prophets excoriate Israel because of the rich people oppressing the poor and the rich people not taking care for the poor. Do you understand this? That in biblical social justice, our obligation as the haves is not just not to steal from other people not to defraud them and not to rip them off our obligation is not just to be legal our obligation is to share and that is justice in the Bible so mishpat the Hebrew word for justice is not just retributive justice or legal justice it's also social justice distributive justice So let's just pause for a moment and and take a side road here. How do we deal with the different economic backgrounds and challenges that are in a healthy church that has a diversity of peoples in it? What it means is those of us who are paying our bills and have some things in savings and who have generally a solid financial footing, we have to be looking out for other people. Does this mean that if they don't have something, we automatically give it to them? No, here's what it means. It means you treat them like a brother. So if my brother is in financial trouble, I, go, and I, I actually have a brother. And I go to my brother and I, I say, Joe, it, it looks like some things aren't going so well. Is there any way I can help you? Well, yeah, I haven't been able to pay my bills. Would you like me to sit down and just talk with you about that? No, I don't want to talk to you about it. Well, that's fine. That's Joe's business. But if Joe says, yeah, sure, I'd really appreciate it. then I sit down with my brother and I ask him questions about his finances. As his brother, I not only want to know, are your bills being paid? I want to know how you're living your life. Are you going to work on time? Are you looking for a job? Are you being responsible? I want to know those things too. I want to get down at the heart of the matter and find out how I can really help him. And so I help him with a comprehensive game plan for his financial life that may very well include giving him a few thousand dollars myself to help him out in the short run while he bridges the gap between not having anything and earning his income again. And this is the way we do church. We help people with their whole life. And if they come into the church as family, that's their obligation, to treat us as family and let us be engaged in their life and not just hold their hand out and say, I can't pay my bills Going I have $500. Well, sometimes we give $500. But if we're really responsible as a family, we want to know why they're $500 short in the first place. So families get to know each other and really find out where the root problems are. And anybody who joins your church is now family. And it's your obligation and my obligation then to offer that kind of help. Now, if I have a blood brother and I'm trying to help him and he doesn't pay his bills, and he won't share with me anything about his financial life, eventually I'm going to say to him, Joe, I just don't know how to help you because I don't have enough information to know know how to help you. If you'd like for me to help you, let me know, but I'll need to have some more information. I would do that with my blood brother. So I'm available. I'm going to sacrifice for him. I'm going to divest something in my account and put it in his account. But first of all, I have to be responsible to know, are we really solving the root problems? So I tell my brother that. That's exactly what we do in church. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, look, if people don't work, just let them not eat. That's part of the discipline of not being willing to work. So you don't fund somebody's irresponsibility. But on the other hand, you don't ignore the fact that they've got financial problems. We help people find jobs. We help people keep jobs. We help people network. They have our contact lists and they have access to our bank accounts using wisdom not, not on their own but they have access to our bank accounts if they need them and if they're taking the measures to move forward as family members to work responsibly and if they're unemployed and they're genuinely looking for work and can't find it we gather around them and help take care of them and their families that's what the church does and you say well how far does this go on till Jesus comes back and how much of my money, how much of my money can I lose over this? All of it. If you belong to a family, of course, you don't, you don't hoard your bank account for yourself. What about your children? Are you saying your children would, would, would need surgery and you wouldn't take the last $10,000 out of your bank account for surgery? Are you crazy? Of course, you'll empty your bank account. So when you join the church, you become liable for everything. But not without wisdom. Because the real help you're going to give to people is not money, it's yourself. Wisdom, encouragement, help, your presence. That's what it means. So this is the mentality that's in the Apostle Paul's mind. And then he's watching them behave like this, like a bunch of nincompoops who are just treating the church like another social club. And the pagans had their social clubs and they had professional clubs. And this is the way you did it in the professional clubs. The, the guilds. You know, if you're a tent maker or an artist or you know, something else, you'd be in a guild. And this is the way the guilds did it. And Paul's saying, you don't do church like the guilds. You don't do church like business. You do church like family. So here's the challenge. He's saying it's shameful what you are doing. It is undermining the church. And you're better off not going to church than to do church like that. Now, turn to, to uh, verse 23. And here's what we see. He's he's pushing this point further now. And he's saying your social injustice even at the Lord's table is not just socially snobby behavior, but it is rooted in theologically irreverent behavior. So you're not just a bunch of snobs. You're also a bunch of heretics. <laughs> Boy, we're getting all kinds of compliments today, aren't we? Thank you, Paul. But he says, here's your real problem. Not that you despise the church. You despise the Lord. Wow. This is the reason that he takes up the words of the institution for the Lord's Supper in verses 23 through 27. He doesn't do it simply to say, hey, let me give you the liturgy for your Lord's Supper. Here it is, boys. No, there's a social justice argument in the midst of which this, these words are given. He, because look, he said he uses the word for. For I receive from the Lord. So he's continuing the argument. He's saying, you are showing favoritism in the church, humiliating your poor brothers, making them feel left out. They already felt that way anyway. Now they go to your house, they really feel left out because they can't get in the triclinium. You put them on the atrium with no food. And... It's shameful, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered unto you. And then he gives the entire work of the Lord's Supper. And he says, do you realize you're denying the very essence of the gospel itself when you behave this way? And let's look at these words. And we're going to have to take a few minutes to look at these because they're just too rich with meaning for us to fly through this. Let's, let's read it again, verses 23 through 27. And I'm just going to stop at each phrase. For I received from the Lord. Let's stop right there. What does he mean by that? Well, if you read Morris, Leon Morris, you saw uh, Morris said, well, there are a couple of theories. One is that Paul could have had it given to him by revelation just as he did the Gospel by revelation from the Lord directly. That's possible. But this kind of language would also be used for someone who is saying, I received it from the Lord because the Lord said it and it was passed down to me faithfully by other apostles. And that probably is is the way in which he means it here. He's saying, these are words from the Lord. I received this from the Lord. And then I also delivered it unto you. When I showed you how to participate in the Lord's communion, this is what I told you. He said that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, stop there just a moment, the Apostle Paul gave them these words from the Lord. He was on the night when He was betrayed that He gave this supper. Now this obviously it's an amazing thing. Here's the Lord thinking about you and thinking about me on the very night when He's being turned in to be crucified. And furthermore, we know the Jews uh, turned Him in and we know the Romans crucified Him, but folks, uh, the disciples betrayed Him. So here you have a reminder. This is not about what other people did to Jesus. It's about what we did to Jesus. On the night in which He was betrayed, He took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body. This is my body. Now, of course, as we said in the earlier part of the meal, he'd be talking about the bread. Later on, he'd be talking about the cup. And he's, he's saying that sacramentally understand that this meal, just like Passover, represents certain things for the Israelites remembering they were delivered from Exodus. Here, what you're remembering is this covenant is sealed by my broken body. So the covenant meal that you're enjoying here has to do not with the manna given from heaven. It has to do with the body that was incarnate in the Virgin Mary and broken for you. So now this bread doesn't recommend, doesn't reference something that was given to you in the wilderness as in the Passover meal. No, here it represents the gift of God from heaven to give us a human body that was broken for you. Now various traditions in this room would see those words as signifying different things. Uh, Some would say that he's saying that literally this bread is my body, which to a Protestant seems strange because here was his body at the same time that he was speaking of this as his body. The disciples probably didn't think the bread was actually his body because his body was there. (laughs) But anyway, uh, uh, and you wouldn't understand, Protestants don't understand the Catholic position on this uh, uh, without uh, Thomistic philosophy, St. Thomas of Aquinas. Thomistic philosophy allows for things... So, uh, accidents and and um, help me uh, the accidents and substance for example the if this table the accidents of the table is metal it may look like wood but it's metal. so the accidents is metal. the substance of this table is tableness. So what I'm saying is uh, when I say if I'm a Roman Catholic I say this is my body and the bread is actually the body of Christ, I don't mean that the accidents, the breadness is no longer bread. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the substance of it is my body. Now, some would say, yeah, but you have to be a philosopher to understand the distinction. (laughs) It's a distinction without a difference for most lay people. and, And I would agree there's a lot of confusion there. But just so that you understand what was being said in the Middle Ages about transubstantiation, it was the substance that was being transubstantiation, transubstantiation, It's substance, not accidents. That's a Thomistic philosophical distinction that's applied to the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church. Protestants have their own disagreements. Lutherans would say, well, we don't agree with the Catholics that it's transubstantiation. We believe it's consubstantiation. That is that the substance changes with the bread so that with the bread, over, under, around, and suffused, around it is the presence of Christ. And then most Protestants would say, none of those categories apply because it has nothing to do with what the Bible is saying here. And we just simply take the meal as it seems to be presented as a covenantal meal. And we'll talk more about that later. So, uh, but there is debate, of course, in Christendom about what it means when he says, this is my body. But for sure, sacramentally, he's saying this is my body. This represents my body. And you're to treat it that way um, in terms of remembering. Which is for you. Which is for you. This is language right from Isaiah 53. Substitutionary language. My body was laid down for you. My body was put in your place so that rather than your suffering the wrath of God, my body suffered the wrath of God. And that's what that bread is sacramentally representing for us. And then he says, Do this in remembrance of me, or as you saw in the commentary since it's in the present imperative it could be continue to do this in remembrance of me and so it's a commandment for continuous celebration so it's not just a meal that was celebrated in the first century it's not just the last supper one time with Jesus frankly it's not just once a year like Passover it's to be continually celebrated and you can debate how often it ought to be celebrated but certainly the Apostle Paul here uniquely actually in this version he shows that it's to be repeatedly celebrated. And then in the same way also He took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wow. He's saying, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one: new covenant is coming. When the law will be written upon the hearts of God's people, this new covenant is now coming into reality by virtue of my blood shed for you. That's quite a statement when you take the cup and what it means then to drink of the cup of the new covenant. Do this as often as you're drinking in remembrance of me. So certainly we remember Him when we take the supper. We don't just go through it as a magical exercise hoping that God will just pour out His blessing on us while we go through this ritual. No, we're actually contemplating what Jesus has done for us. Remember what He's done. And there are many, many aspects of that that can be contemplated as you take the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, look at this, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now some think that the celebration of the Lord's Supper itself is a proclamation of the death of Christ. That may very well be true. It's probably also true that at the Lord's Supper, as we often do in some of our traditions, we in the midst of the Lord's Supper proclaim the death of the Lord. You know how we, for example, those of you in the uh, Episcopal church, will often say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. That phrase has been repeated through centuries of time by Christians. And we proclaim that at the Eucharist. And so it seems that that was done perhaps even in the first century, that in the midst of celebrating the Lord's Supper, they proclaimed the Lord's death and resurrection and second coming. And he says, as long as you keep this supper, you're continuing to proclaim His death. So it is a proclamation. And then he says... Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let's pause here just a moment because I do think there's a significant amount of confusion about what it means to eat or drink in an unworthy manner. There have been a lot of Christians who have come to the supper in a very nervous, anxious manner because in the KJV, the translation is you shall not eat or drink unworthily. And we've taken that to mean that, you know, if I have some sin in my life when I'm coming to the table and I eat the bread and drink the cup, I'm eating and drinking damnation to myself. And we get really nervous uh, about our own moral lives when we're coming to the table. Now certainly, if we have unrepentant sin in our lives, with or without the Lord's Supper. We need to repent. Repentance doesn't make us perfect. It just makes us repentant. So a repentant person is not a perfect person. A repentant person has simply, by God's grace, turned his back and is going this way again. And we repent every day and every moment of every day. We're always in repentance. If you pop out of repentance and decide, I'm going after the world, you probably should refrain from the Lord's Supper. You probably... Uh, Also, should repent because you're in danger. That said, let me say that in this text, the unworthy manner that the Apostle Paul is talking about is not specifically whether you're repentant or not. I don't think. It seems clear here, doesn't it, that what he's talking about is the way in which you're celebrating the Lord's Supper. An unworthy manner. And what was the manner? The manner was the rich people are inside the house having dinner by themselves and the poor people are on the atrium. That's an unworthy manner of celebrating the Lord's Supper. What he's really talking about here is that we must celebrate in a manner of family where we're really dealing with each other in social justice and in deep love for each other. And if we can't do it that way, we're better off not having it. So in that sense... Particularly if we're perpetrating evil against one another by ignoring each other or taking advantage of each other, not sharing with each other, then we're taking communion in an unworthy manner. I hope that helps clear that up and so that you can relax just a little bit. Let me tell you something. The Lord's Supper is precisely provided for sinners who, of course, are sorry for their sins and want to be relieved of the burden of them, as our Book of Common Worship says in the Presbyterian Church. We want you to be delivered of the burden of them. Not to be more burdened by your sin because you're more nervous about whether you should come to communion or not. Communion is meant to relieve you of your burden and to remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ died for sinners, for you and for all your sins. So you come celebrating at the Lord's Supper because your sins have been forgiven and you're eating the bread and drinking the cup just like you hear with your ears the gospel, now you're eating the gospel. And it's meant to engage all of your senses, your your sense of smell and taste and touch, so that you can engage your entire being into the gospel. That's the reason for physical elements of the gospel for us to participate. So for heaven's sakes, and for the sake of your own soul, when you take communion, delight yourself in the grace of the gospel. And certainly we always fear and reverence God. Of course, we, we come aware of His majesty and aware of our unworthiness by nature. But we don't come doubting whether He's going to receive us. We come thanking Him. That's what Eucharisteo means. To thank. We thank Him for His grace toward us expressed in the supper. So there you have it through verse 27. The Lord's Supper must not be abused. Now, Verses 28-34, through Roman numeral 2, the Lord's Supper must be carefully observed. First of all, by examining ourselves. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Certainly we do examine ourselves. In the Scottish tradition, we used to have quarterly communions in the old country. And for these quarterly communions, a week before the communion service, uh, we would hold big festivals, revival festivals. And then the elders in the Church of Scotland would go to every home and interview every communicant to be sure that you were ready and prepared for communion. I think that would be a great thing to do these these days. But uh, there was, in some ways, because of the care given, we scared the bejabbers out of some people who had very nervous consciousness or very sensitive consciences because they always felt unworthy of coming to the, the supper. And I think it's great to have revival festivals. I think it's great to prepare ourselves. But when you examine yourself, be sure that you're simply examining yourself so that you come out joyfully knowing that you belong to the Lord and knowing that you're committed to His people and His church. That's what he means by examining ourselves. Secondly, by discerning the body. Now, this is, it's important for us to stop here for a moment in verse 29 because he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body... And there's a lot of discussion about what is the body. Is that to discern the body of of Jesus and what His broken body has done for me? Should I be sure when I come to communion that I'm thinking about His broken body for me? Is that the point? Or is it the body of the church? It seems to me in this context the whole argument has to do with participating in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner within the church and treating the church correctly, it seems clear to me he's talking about the church, that we need to discern the body and and be aware of of everyone in in the family that we're having supper with. So we must discern the body and then eat. If we don't, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Paul has just shown how that works. If you don't discern the body of Christ the church of Jesus Christ if you do despise them and humiliate the poor it's not the Lord's table. And we're despising the Lord because then he goes into the words of institution. Don't you realize the Lord died for you? And that's what you're remembering in the sacrament? And then you're not only not willing to die for your neighbor you're not even willing to give him a piece of bread. So you're contradicting the very essence of the supper, which is Christ dying for us, by not dying for each other. So that seems to be clearly what he's saying here. And he says that no human judgment brings God's judgment. He says, if you don't, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if you do not discern or judge properly, you bring God's judgment. He says, frankly, That's why some of you are weak and ill, and some of you have even died. Wow. Now, obviously, uh, we have to be very careful that we're not the apostle, and we can't make authoritative statements about somebody's death is because they sinned in that particular area. But Here, the apostle Paul is making an infallible statement about what was happening in Corinth. He says, you know, you you all had a lot of funerals recently? Let me tell you something. The way you're doing communion, it would make perfect sense to me that God is judging your very communion. Uh, So be very careful in dealing with Him in worship. Secondly, under discerning the body, notice that human judgment prevents God's judgment. He says, but if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. Gentlemen, this is the reason that judgment begins in the house of God and it begins now. And we as family must be taking care that we're discerning and judging things well among us. And this keeps us from Facing the judgment of God. This is part of what it means to have His judgment averted from us is that now we judge ourselves by the power of the Spirit in Christian wisdom. Thirdly, he says, God's judgment of His church is discipline. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is the reason we judge ourselves is so that we'll not be judged in the end and not be judged along with the world. So if we judge ourselves and there's social justice in the church, even if there's not social justice outside the church, then we have distinguished ourselves from the outside world that God is going to judge. Paul is saying that's the reason your suppers need to be different from your business suppers. Your church fellowship needs to be different from your clubs. This is a this is family, and it must look like family, so that this association is not just like the Kiwanis Club. It's not. It's different. And everyone needs to be able to see and to feel and to experience the family feel of this fellowship. And then he says, lastly, in verses 33 through 34, that by solidarity with one another. In other words, we must be uh, the Lord's Supper must be carefully observed by examining ourselves, by discerning the body, and by solidarity with one another. So then, my brothers, he says, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. That is... You wealthy people, if you want to have a big meal and have extra portions, go home and get your extra portions. The church supper is not primarily for you to satisfy your appetites. The church supper is primarily for everyone in this family to know that they're family. That's what it's for. And when you arrive on a church campus on the Lord's Day or any other day, it's not primarily so that you feel better about yourself. It's primarily so that you can minister to someone else and let them know that they're included in the family. And you're looking for those people. He says that's what it means to go to church. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then he says about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Don't you kind of wonder what those directions were? I really do. Uh, I think it, it probably didn't have anything to do with their golf game, but I'm not sure. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for these directions about social justice in your church. And as we, uh, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, many of us in these coming days, uh, we pray that we will contemplate uh, and discern what you've done for us in the death of our Savior. And that we will discern the body and thank you for the family into which you've placed us. And that this family meal will truly be a family meal. And the least among us, the the ones who are the have-nots, the ones who are the left-outs, will have and will be brought in and will know that they are members, valued and cherished members of your family. Forgive us, Lord, for our elitism. Forgive us for our snobbery. Forgive us for following the lines of cultural distinctions rather than the clear and beautiful lines drawn for us in the Scriptures. And help us today to be men who look at people the way you look at them and to value them the way you value them. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.